0: Before we begin, a heads up that this episode contains the sound of gunfire and stories which some listeners may find upsetting. I'm Ben Coley. I've been a presenter at BFBS The Forces Station for the past two and a half years. My second overseas posting was to the Falkland Islands, but I'll be dead honest, before I went, I hardly knew anything about the military conflict that happened there 40 years ago. In this series, I want to learn even more by hearing from those who were there.
1: We were out
2: in the open, four bombs hit us and not one exploded. I started trying to rub my head into the mud to reduce this burning sensation.
3: It wasn't until I had to get up that I realised that I'd burnt my face and my head. Just,
4: I walked past this mirror and I just saw this like large beach ball from mortar, shotgun, and shrapnel. A variety of, if you like, infantry injuries. And at the same time, we were treating very severe burns. Cold water immersion injury from both sides at a completely First World War injury.
3: You know, there was no way we could communicate with our families
5: back in UK. I'd had a dream that had haunted me for a couple of years of an officer coming to the door to give me the news that Gary was dead.
0: Join me on the journey from invasion to liberation. This is Falklands 82, stories from the South Atlantic. Last time we heard all about what happened at Goose Green, but we shouldn't forget that while soldiers and Marines made their way on foot towards the capital Stanley, the battle at sea continued. On the 30th of May, Argentine forces meant to target HMS Invincible, but due to an error on their part, HMS Avenger ended up being in the firing line. Jeff Roberts was on board as an acting leading seaman missile.
6: Everybody remembers this on board, the ship remembers the day of the 30th of May. The Argentinians had planned to try and make a big splash with their last missile by going for HMS Invincible or the Hermits. Unfortunately, they got their their recognition wrong, and and it was us that was in the firing line. And I was off watch at the time. I was just grabbing my stuff to put it on, and, and the first lieutenant came along and said, you haven't got time for that, get out there. And he just grabbed me, pushed me out, looked up, and I saw this great big ball of fire a number of miles away, but on the horizon. And that spurred me into action. <laughs> the adrenaline was rushing, the gun started firing. We had four Skyhawks came through this fireball and heading towards us. Somehow, one was hit, and apparently it hit the water cartwheeled and broke up into, you know, into pieces. We then lowered the sea boat, went searching for survivors or wreckage. We picked up a few bits of wreckage and the first attempt was calling us back towards the ship and said, down here, down here, have a look. And that was unfortunately part of the torso of the pilot.
0: A week later, HMS Plymouth sustained some serious damage at the hands of Argentine aircraft.
1: Yeah, we we were actually hit by four bombs, multiple cannon shots, which leave holes about the size of a grapefruit, on the 8th of June, which was the same day Sir Galahad and Sir Tristan got hit.
0: That's Royal Navy chef, Mac Macdade. He spent 121 days at sea aboard HMS Plymouth.
1: We were out in the open. We were in Falkland Sound, between the two, East and West Islands. And yeah, we were sitting ducks, so we got caught out in the open. Four bombs hit us and not one exploded. Thankfully, they they didn't realize that the problem was they were flying too low. The bombs didn't detonate because they didn't have long enough to unwind their little mechanism inside. We had a depth charge because we had a WASP helicopter. We had a depth charge on the flight deck, which was there to be strapped on the helicopter, if necessary. One of the bombs hit the depth charge and the depth charge exploded and started a fire on board. And that was what caused the main damage for us. Although a bomb went, through the funnel, in one side, out the other. One went uh, across the quarter deck and hit our mortar guns on the back end and knocked one of the barrels to the side. It, it also took out part of the mortar control room and another one went through the side and into the mortar room where all the mortar bombs are kept and didn't explode. <laughs> Can you imagine if that had gone off, the back end of the ship would have been obliterated.
7: I'm Mick Fellows. I was a fleet clearance diving officer Second in command of Fleet Clearance Diving Team number one during the Falklands campaign in 1982. Mick spent a lot of his time dealing with unexploded bombs. I had a report that HMS Plymouth had come under enemy fire. and I was asked or told to investigate. I went across to Plymouth. I stepped onto the bridge, but didn't really step far enough. And I tripped up over the doorway. Prior to going, I thought, well, this is going to be the last job. I'm going to have a little swig of that whiskey I've got. We got all the bombs onto the upper deck, lowered them over the side on a piece of rope and then let go the rope. So they sank to the seabed quite swiftly. I then reported to Captain Pentreef, I believe his name was. Yes. He said, can I be completely honest with you? I said, please, sir. He said, well, when you came on, I shouted for help. I said, we put up a lot. on on the Plymouth. we have been heavily bombed. They said they would send me the only bomb disposal man available in the Southern Hemisphere. He said, you arrived on board, you tripped over the bridge entrance, fell on your face, and I thought I've got the only man in the Southern Hemisphere and he's pissed. (laughs) He said, we were worried.
0: At the same time, in Bluff Cove, on the southeast coast, Royal Fleet Auxiliary ships, Sir Galahad and Sir Tristram, were preparing to land the Welsh Guards when they came under attack by three Argentine Skyhawks. Michael Clapp was Commodore in charge of amphibious land forces. I loaded up
8: Galahad and sent her down, on the understanding that Sir Tristram would be sailing back. So. When it all happened, I was puzzled as to why they were still there and not yet unloaded. The 5 Brigade had come forward without any communications. I didn't know that. Now, what on earth is the brigade headquarters doing, moving away from its Land Rover with all the communications on it? It is madness. But what of Sir Tristram? I now know that the captain of Sir Tristram did not send any signals because he was defending himself. He realised there was chaos going on and he didn't want to draw attention to the fact that he was there. He knew Galahad was coming but he didn't want to warn him or anything like that beforehand.
0: There was no greater loss of British life in the Falklands conflict than the attacks on those two ships. Five Royal Fleet auxiliary crewmen were killed, along with 55 Welsh guards. 150 were injured. One of them was Welsh guard Neil Wilkinson. He was on board the Sir Galahad when it was hit.
3: I was in shock, obviously, so I didn't really take much notice. I mean I turned people running around and pushing near and what have you. And you were just pushed along to wherever you had to go. Yeah, it wasn't until I had to get up off my bed to go f- to the treatment room that I realised that I'd burnt my face and my head. Just, I walked past this mirror and I just saw this like large beach ball and realised it was me. So I had a bit of a weep. And then the staff on the UK were amazing. You know, they covered us all in what they called flammazine and stuck our hands and whatever you in plastic bags. The British
0: cruise ship SS Uganda had been requisitioned by the Ministry of Defence while cruising the Mediterranean. She was taken to Gibraltar and converted into a hospital with 400 beds. From there, she was dispatched to the South Atlantic with a team of 136 medical staff, including 12 doctors, operating theatre staff and 40 nurses from Queen Alexandra's Royal Naval Nursing Service. After the land battles had begun, medics on board Uganda were busy treating around 20 new casualties each day. Nikki Pugh was a nurse on board.
4: The nature were really from mortar, shotgun and shrapnel. These were the variety of, if you like, infantry injuries. And at the same time, we were treating from all the ships attacked, a numbers, numerous shrapnel, and very severe burns from the Royal Naval ships. And then, of course, we were treating Argentinian, and we also treated a significant amount of cold water immersion injury from both sides at a completely First World War injury, bearing in mind we're now going into a southern hemisphere winter months. The conditions for the troops were severely cold and, and below freezing. I don't say that the trench foot that we treated was, I don't make a blame issue, but eventually parts of the limb have have to be amputated.
0: Hospital ships are bound by the Geneva Convention, and Nikki says this made things tricky.
4: Once the ship was officially under the Geneva Convention, there are a number of restrictions and protocols that we had to adhere to. The most significant of those restrictions is that by international law, the hospital ship itself has to be illuminated from dusk until dawn, that means through the night hours. During our operational time, if you like, the ship would be illuminated from about half past three in the afternoon with the ship's own lights that have to legally shine onto the Red Crosses. Now, that would make a hospital ship into an extremely useful target and beacon for any enemy.
0: Over on land, troops were being treated at a temporary field hospital. Led by Surgeon Commander Rick Jolly, it was set up at an old mutton processing plant at Ajax Bay, across the water from the first landings at San Carlos. Affectionately known as the Red and Green Life Machine, the faded words can still be seen above the entrance to the now derelict building. Royal Marine Jim Giles worked there during the conflict. We
8: helped out on the casualties when they come in into the triage, the first part of the, their assessment. Seeing what had already been done treatment-wise, getting fluid into them and getting lines into them and preparing them for for surgery, some of them, you know, pretty rapidly. So they weren't there that long and they were straight onto a table and being put under anesthetic and stuff like that and, and, and getting an operated on.
0: As the Falklands conflict raged on, worried families back at home in the UK were waiting for good news from their loved ones. From my own time spent in the Falklands, the internet wasn't great, But at least my family knew I was either penguin spotting or on the radio, that's hardly a conflict. Mike Kelly from the parachute regiment.
3: I think that the families probably had more stress than we did because at least we were all together with your mates and we knew what we were doing. Whereas they potentially isolated in a married quarter with three kids to look after. One of them was only about three or four months old and actually seeing people come down in uniform and go to houses to tell people their husbands are either injured or dead, you know, not very nice for them.
0: J. Morgan Hiron's was married to Lance Corporal Gary Bingley, who served with 2nd Battalion, the Parachute Regiment. Gary
5: couldn't wait to go. He was a paratrooper through and through. So for him, he trained for the last six years to go to war. He liked the idea of being able to fight an enemy that was a a clean, they'd invaded, we're going there to save the people kind of war. I personally wanted to break his leg to stop him going, you know. Not because I wanted to hurt my husband, because it would have been a reason he wouldn't have been able to go. But I also knew well enough, having been married for five years, that that would have ended ended our marriage and we would have got divorced if I'd have done something like that. So I was just mortified. I'd had a dream that had haunted me for a couple of years, of an officer coming to the door to give me the news that Gary was dead. And I knew, without a shadow of a doubt, I knew from the moment he left that he wasn't coming back. And we always had a pact. From the time I went to live with him in Berlin that, First time he said goodbye to me, I said, I don't ever say goodbye. The goodbyes are forever. So we always said, ta I'll see you later, and anything but goodbye. And I always find this bit the hardest bit to say, but the day that he actually left, we said our goodbyes in the usual way, and then as he went to walk away, he suddenly stopped dead in his tracks and turned round and looked at me, <sighs> and he said, goodbye, girly. That was my nickname and that just completely confirmed to me that my worst fears were true, that he wasn't coming back, and he knew it too. Gary was killed at the Battle of
0: Goose Green. Alice Farrow's father was Lieutenant Commander Malcolm Farrow, aboard HMS Hermes.
9: My father and my mother had a conversation where my mother said, you're definitely going to turn left when you go out of the Mediterranean. And my father said, no, we'll be coming home for Easter. We'll be turning right. And my mother said, I don't think so. And then she had confirmation from somebody, and I'm not quite sure who it was. I think it was someone at Northwood that he would definitely be going. I, meanwhile, was two and a half. And my first proper memory of anything was finding my mother crying, sitting on the bottom step of our staircase, having just found out he'd gone. So I toddled off to go and get some blue roll for her to dry her eyes on, and she cried even more. As soon as things happened, everyone grouped together and made sure that the people who had family out there were supported. For example, a very close friend of my mother's who was also a naval wife. She would come around every morning and spend the entire day either answering the phone or answering the door because we would have all kinds of local neighbours, friends coming to us and asking what was happening, where, where everyone was, how was Malcolm.
0: Alice's father sent her letters from HMS Hermes.
9: Darling Alice... This is only a short letter because I've just written two longer letters to Mummy who will no doubt read you what I said and tell you the news. I just wanted to say how much I miss you and hope you are being nice to Mummy, taking her bickies and things to her bed on the Sunday morning. I'm sure I'll be home again very soon so don't worry about me. But if you have a photograph you can send me of you and Mummy, I would be delighted because I only bought one with me. If you have difficulty reading this letter, ask her to help you. Lots of love,
0: Daddy. John Reid was a radio operator on board HMS Arrow. His parents helped support
8: other families back home. When
1: I was away, my mum and dad put a thing in
8: the local paper. Uh, my dad was a minister, so he, he was sort of used to this kind of thing. And he had what he called a family's association in Hull. So any mums, dads, wives, daughters, anybody related to anybody around the Falklands, Met at my mum and dad's every Thursday night, usually about fifty people. It was summerish, so they could do a lot of it outside, cups of coffee and sticky buns and things. So my family basically helped probably a hundred people during the course of the war. So the support at home was there,
0: great, but how did families in the UK view the conflict? What was the media coverage like for a battle being fought 8,000 miles away? Through TV screens across the UK, the conflict looked just as bleak as the reality. Alice Farrow was watching.
9: Nobody could really rest at all. Everybody was absolutely hooked to any kind of media because they just wanted to make sure that their loved one, particularly my father, was safe and they were all calling each other. There were certainly various phone trees in action in those days. And I think that it was one of immense worry.
10: Andrew
0: Kenyon's family were also glued to the TV.
10: But my mum, my dad, and my younger brother, younger by about six years, and they're all in bits what they're seeing on the news. They were worry sick, obviously. And what made it worse was one night, on the news and I'll blame the BBC, it was the BBC News, they told me, all they said was a ship beginning with the letter A has been hit by a bomb. Well, say there are about six ships, at least six ships down there beginning with the letter A, that didn't give them a great deal of news, but it was enough for them to start thinking, well, HMS Arrow begins with A, it's been hit with a bomb, our Andrew could be dead. My mum has smoked all her life. She's stopped apparently a year or so before the Falklands. And when I got back, she blamed me
6: for restarting her smoking habit.
0: Meanwhile, back in the Falklands, commander of three commando brigades, Julian Thompson, was making plans for British forces to take the higher ground around the capital, Port Stanley. This was the battle for the mountains.
11: I told them in advance these are likely to be your objectives. I said to Three Para, you've got to concentrate on Longdon. I told Four Two Commando, I'm, I'm going to give you Mount Harriet, and I told Four Five Commando Two Sisters. So they had plenty of time to prepare, send in recce patrols, and, and do all the preparation work they required. And in fact, Harriet is, I think, the most unknown battle because. There were very few casualties. In fact, I think it was one of the most brilliant battles where you you captured a light battalion, more or less, uh, losing two dead and 13 wounded because of the crafty plan involved, which of course relied on brilliant patrolling and preparation because good ideas don't normally just come out of flashes. You know, they need a lot of working on and they need good people to carry them out and you do the unexpected thing, which is the most difficult thing, and therefore the enemy thinks you're not going to do it. And you can only do that with well-trained people. After all the patrolling, everyone was set to go. It was going to be a night attack. I decided night, particularly after the experience of Goose Green, when the battle went on to daylight, the Argentines had some very good direct-fire weapons, heavy machine guns. They used some anti-aircraft guns in the direct-fire role. So what we had to do was to play to our strength, which was our training, our ability to fight at night, to overcome the chaos of night fighting. And so the attacks were planned within HR, i.e. get across the start line and start attacking at about midnight. And I thought that either Two Sisters or Harriet would be the most difficult. Actually, it was Longdon, But by the end of that night, We'd captured all our objectives, so we were secure on those three features.
0: On the night of the 11th and 12th of June, Three Para began their assault on Mount Longdon. Brian Faulkner was a colour sergeant and says that the objective had been set, but the conditions
10: weren't what they expected. Our HR was at a minute past midnight. We was all there, we was all pleased, ready for it. B Company had gone on, We were told once again that the weather would be awful. It wasn't. It was a beautiful cold night, stars everywhere, full moon. We thought, who's the weatherman in this operation? (laughs) Anyway, we settled down. We were absolutely wet through because we had to cross the Murrow River and it was freezing lying in those positions. B Company had then marched across a minefield which was unknown to us and they'd got right to the base of the mountain when one of the corporal section commanders stepped on a mine and that alerted everybody on the mountain. And then from then on, all we could see was green tracer belonging to the Argentinian machine guns, red tracer belonging to us. It came over the air, RAP forward, urgent, casualties taken. So we at the time were not aware that this was a minefield directly in front of us. As a combat medic, he was attached to an RAP, a
0: Regimental Aid Post. But it wasn't long before Brian and his soldiers were surrounded by the enemy.
10: We'd heard that the Argentinians had uh, helicopters with troops inside to assault the back of the mountain where we all were and i was indicating where all the machine guns 30 calibers should go trenches where everybody should be and the next thing i heard was shouting shouting argentinians argentinians and we had a rock a rock face by the side of the rap and it was a high rock face and it went to the other side and that's the side that these argentinians were coming so i just once again took Bulled by the horn, I grabbed as many weapons as I could that was leaning against the wall that had been left there by the wounded and the dead, and I ran down, got around the corner of the strip of rocks, grabbed as many guys as I could, people going through our location, people with weapons, and led them on a counterattack up the hill. It was his job to defend the
0: mountain and assist the wounded.
10: I had to look for a position that would be safe for the vehicles to come, collect the dead and wounded, and bring in the ammunition. And it was just below the summit of Mount Longdon, so it was easy to go forward and collect the wounded. Not only that, but the guys were also dragging wounded Argentinians out of their positions, and people were taking them down to our position so we could do them. And then our lads came out from each side, and forced to surrender and took them away. I looked around I didn't have many with me, by the way. When I finally went round and started running up the hill, I was like being a bit of a banshee, if you don't mind me saying.
0: By the time Mount Longdon was secured, Free Power had lost 23 men, making it the costliest battle of the conflict for the British. 50 Argentines were killed and 50 taken prisoner.
10: The fighting that took place that night was by small groups of men. It wasn't controlled by the company commander's anything because it wasn't a company commander's war on this particular night. It belonged to the individual soldiers and corporals and B Company, unfortunately, took some heavy casualties that night. Brian was awarded the Distinguished
0: Conduct Medal for his gallantry during the Battle of Mount Longdon. At the same time, 45 Commando began their advance on Two Sisters, a mountain 10 kilometers west of Port Stanley. They were supported by naval gunfire from HMS Glamorgan. Ian Gardiner of 45 Commando recognized the challenge ahead.
8: The commanding officer delivered his orders. I prepared my orders and delivered my orders. We brainstormed all the what ifs, what would we do if he got stuck, what would we do if I got stuck, what would we do if we went through like a knife through butter. We knew that time would be of the essence because HMS Glamorgan, a wonderful asset that she was, was in danger of being hit by an Exocet missile. We knew there was a land-based missile system on the coast waiting to pluck off plums just like her. However, we also knew it only had a daylight capability as long as it was dark, Glamorgan would be fine. But if we were still fighting our battle at dawn, she would have to leave. So that, of course, placed a great time constraint on us. And being caught halfway up a mountain in daylight without having won your battle, nah, and losing a bulk of your artillery, corny no do that, (laughs) not a good plan. Even with all the preparation in the world, the Falklands can be a tricky place. A journey which probably could have been done in two hours, perhaps three, I planned four hours for this journey. Well, what I hadn't accounted for was the extra weight we were carrying with 30 Milan missiles are not very readily portable. The minute we left our patrol base, a Dartmoor type clag descended upon us. No problem, we could, measure the distance, we could use our compasses, we'd wrecked the ground. But at the far end, we found ourselves about a hundred meters out. We were the wrong side of a great stone run. These rivers of boulders, some of boulders as big as cars, you step on them, they move, they're slippery, they're icy, they're covered in moss. And struggling across these in the middle of the night delayed us terribly. We also got separated, 150 men by now in the mist, got broken up. I spent half the night trying to find guys. I didn't speak to my commanding officer until the last minute, and I told him that we were two hours late. Instead of ripping my head off, he said, Right, we'll change the plan. I will keep the ship. I will keep the artillery. You have the mortars. You have 40 commanders' anti-tank weapons. Sort yourself out. Tell me when you're ready, and we'll go concurrently. We'll go together. And this act of patience, this act of trust, was enough to soothe my rattled nerves. And I was able to turn around in turn to my people and say, right, sort yourselves out. Put the last six hours behind you. Tell me when you're ready, and we'll crack on. Ten minutes later... 150 knackered marines were as good as new.
0: But then came
8: the inevitable chaos of conflict. My marines fought their way, rather like fighting in a built-up area. The rocks were so big. Fought their way, teamwork, teamwork. Grenade, follow in, cover each other. They went in, one man going one way, one man going another, bit by bit anti-tank weapons. The the 66mm when you found a bunker which had a machine gun in it, hit it with a 66mm. The noise, the chaos, you don't know which bang is friendly, which is enemy. Any night vision that you might have started with is instantly wrecked by the illuminating shells, theirs or ours. Communicating very difficult. Men get deafened by the noise. The aerials get shot off, get broken. Men get wooded, taking cover. The only sure way of communicating with a man in circumstances like that is to thump him in the back and bellow in his ear. We thought there might be mines. If anyone went up in a mine, go straight on. Don't wait for him. Don't, don't 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 attend to him. Don't try and give him first aid. Just keep going. Your best defence in a mindful is run through it. <laughs>
0: By the morning of the 12th of June, British forces had secured two sisters. But this came at a cost. Seven Royal Marine Commandos and a sapper from the Corps of Royal Engineers were killed. A further 17 British marines were wounded. Even with the initial protection of Nightfall, HMS Glamorgan didn't escape unscathed. She stayed past the time she was meant to leave and was hit by an Exocet missile. 14 crew died. The final key for the task force to unlock the approaches to Stanley was Mount Tumbledown. On the 13th of June, the 2nd Battalion Scots Guards were tasked with launching their attack on the Argentine defences who anchored themselves there. Robert Lawrence was a platoon commander.
2: I think we were absolutely at the pinnacle of ready to go, ready to do this. This is what we do. So the adrenaline is high. The awareness is tremendous. It's a pretty extraordinary scenario. And you can imagine you are just on high dough. Every piece of adrenaline in your body is going. Your awareness is huge. We were wearing berries because we were fighting at night and for identification purposes, we said, if someone's wearing a helmet, they're Argentinian. If someone's wearing a berry, they're they're friendly forces.
0: One thing was clear. If our troops were going to get to Stanley, it wouldn't be handed to them
2: on a plate. We still did not know what our final objective was gonna be and it was quite something to suddenly hear what it was gonna be primarily because tumbledown was one of their last and strongest defensive positions literally outside Stanley. It was manned by the Argentinian 5th Marines who were highly professional, highly trained, were trained at night fighting, well-equipped, well-disciplined. So we as a regiment or as a battalion were very aware that we weren't going to be fighting conscripts. We weren't going to be fighting youngsters who were incapable of doing what they needed to do. Not that I would have wanted to have been at Goose Green, don't get me wrong, but we were very aware that we were going to take on the best the Argentinians had to offer.
0: The troops scrabbled over rocky outcrops in the cutting wind and snow towards their target.
2: In reality, my understanding is that they set off, they stopped, observed, couldn't see anyone, couldn't see any positions moved on again, stopped, looked again, couldn't see anything on, moved on again. And after a couple of phases of that, suddenly heard snoring, Mm. which were Argentinians Mm. in fire trenches around them. At that Mm. point, I understand Mm. radio sparked up quite loudly. The Argentinians in those defensive positions woke up, started firing or hell let loose. Richard, Agella was carrying a Bren gun. We had the loss of an extremely powerful warrant officer, Danny White, who was much loved within the battalion. Richard had two rounds through his hood and the nine para engineer on his left was also killed. The power of survival and the capacity to fight to survive is enormous. So when it starts going downhill, it just becomes gutter fighting. People don't die as easily as you think they might do. We're very conditioned by, you know, James Bond firing the single shot and the guys down and out. People don't, people keep going. People fight on to an extraordinary level. So when it comes to Mano a mano in any kind of real fight, it becomes very unpleasant. Very, very, very unpleasant. And that is the nature of the beast.
0: Nine British men were killed and 43 were wounded at Mount Tumbledown. Robert Lawrence knows all too well of that power of survival that he speaks of. As the bloodshed continued, something happened to him.
2: There was Stanley just down there, that was the target and that was the aim. So to some degree, we seem to have achieved the very difficult role we were given to do successfully. So that was amazing. And of course, (laughs) when you think like that, the inevitable's gonna happen. I felt a huge, huge blow to the back of my head, shoulders and body. I was completely unaware of the paralysis that I've had ever since down my left-hand side. I became very aware of burning sensations. I started trying to rub my head into the mud uh, to reduce, and it was beginning to snow, to reduce this burning sensation. And after a short period of time, one of my lance sergeants and one of my corporals made it to me. As he turned me over, I immediately felt the blood run into my ears and fill my eye, and I knew that I'd been penetrated. You become frightened, and you become cold, and your body starts screaming at you to survive. I started crying and being rather pathetic. I was aware that I was being a bit pathetic, but it wasn't a good position to be in.
0: On the doorstep of the capital, with the final engagements ringing into the night and a steadfast British front, victory on Mount Tumbledown was almost there. Next time on Falklands 82, stories from the South Atlantic.
4: He was looking through our coat pockets. Nerves or temper, I don't know what it was. I just said, do you honestly think that I have got a British soldier hidden there? And And I just said, you stupid, and then I
2: won't repeat what else I called him. We didn't know whether we were gonna be shot or taken away. I cannot remember to this day what my first words were to him when he said it was my bombs that got you.
11: Maybe it was just another day in a broadcaster's life. But when I look back now, I think, wasn't I fortunate to be the man there that night doing this job?
5: Pilots all fancy themselves, don't they? uh, Of course, you know, they invited all us girls down to a party at the airport in Stanley. And, oh, they're the most boring bunch of buses you've ever run into. Oh, hi. So one of the girls picked up a case of toilet rolls the way home we went.
0: This is an original BFBS podcast produced by me, Ben Coley, with Jess Bracey, Jade Calloway, Ginny Carlin and Tim Humphreys, with interviews from BFBS, The Forces Station and our friends at Forces News. Sound design and editing is by Joe Carden and Sean Harper and our editor is Josella Waldron.